This episode is brought to you by Airbnb. Hi, Pashi. Hi, Sufi. This is very exciting. Phil Kogan, our guest today, might wrap his arms around the premise of the show better than anyone we've ever had. Yeah, I mean, such an interesting childhood. Yeah. And so much travel. So much travel. A shocking amount of travel. A host of The Amazing Race on CBS, if you did not know. And not only does he have great stories about travel, he maybe might be the most inspirational when speaking about the value of travel. Yeah, and also promotes the idea that you don't need a lot of money to travel. But that traveling is good for relationships, is good for the soul, is, yeah, it's just good. It's good for how we see the people in the world around us. He's a very special guy, and I want to get to that conversation. But first, this is the first time we're recording one of these intros after you and mom and dad were on the Thanksgiving show. Yeah. Of late night. Yeah. I kept saying it was the 10th year, and I I believe it maybe was only the 9th year that you've been on. But still, nine times, and I'm not, no exaggeration, it was my favorite. Yeah, I mean, some reviews, you know, from some friends of mine uh, also said their favorite. They think that was the best. And it was, it was great. You know, mom always talks about how she's very nervous for it to start. And you can feel her nerves, like I can feel her nerves because I'm holding her hand when we walk out. But man, it does not show. Yeah, she's real smooth on camera. Yeah. And just so funny, like so, such funny takes. Yeah. Her comedy now is almost entirely born of the fact that she's over dad. Yeah. It's an audible eye roll. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I want to stress that they're very uh, happy together. They could not live without one another. But I do think she's found a real comedy lane is uh, to talk about how he's just a real pain. Yeah. I'll also say I I spoke to them uh, each individually on the phone yesterday, which is so much better than talking to them together. Yeah. Because they might tell the same story, but they have a different take on it. If one of them sort of wants to interject, then it cuts the other one off. And I talked to each of them for maybe a half hour each, which is miles longer than I would speak to them if they were together on the phone. I would rather watch a a family of lions tear apart a zebra carcass (laughs) than watch mom and dad try to tell the same story. Also, there was a while in uh, in the pandemic where we were doing Zoom a lot with them or, you know, FaceTime. It just sort of seemed like that's, you know, would be a better connection. And mom never seemed to clock that when she would roll her eyes at dad on FaceTime or Zoom, that he would also be seeing her in the camera that was being held right in front of them. Yeah. (laughs) At this point, her eye rolling is like a knee reflex. Yeah. She can't help it. She's just sighing and eye rolling. It's second nature at this point. Yeah. Also, we typically, classically, we've always called on Sundays. We've always spoken to our parents on Sundays. And during football season... It's typically after the Steeler game, so we can discuss the Steeler game. But mom is an eternal optimist, and dad is a terrible pessimist. So when you want to talk Steelers with either of them, having them together just doesn't work. And so great catch up on both fronts, and I I got to hear dad be mad about another win. Yep. (laughs) Can't even see the good in a win. That's where he's at. Again, I do think this is because the prime of dad's life was the Steelers were winning Super Bowls almost every year. 
And yeah. so he has a very high standard for what he expects from his uh, from his hometown football team. Yeah. I also, it was your idea, and uh, then we had some writers on our show chip in, but the highlight of the Thanksgiving show for me was a written segment called You Brind. And if our listeners just go on YouTube, just search for You Brind, and I just want to say my parents and Josh were impeccably great. It was a really fun sketch. It was great for me. It felt like the way I used to feel like when I was the anchor on Weekend Update, where I just got to sit there and watch somebody just swish threes while I was right off camera. It was a delight. Yeah, it was great. I mean, not not great that you sort of weren't in it, but that it was something that, you know, as it was written, took you by surprise, but that you didn't you didn't burn anyone through the whole thing. If anyone was burned, it was you. And uh, it was sort of a sketch that was written for us. And you were uh, in the frame of, of it. Yeah, it was really fun. And yeah, much much appreciation to uh, Alex Bays, Seth Reese. Helped out. It was really fun. And we had uh, some uh, nice meals when you were here. And then I took mom and dad. They came with me for Thanksgiving. I should also know one of the nice things about this year's show, there was a lot of news. Dad retired. You got engaged. It was fun to talk about these things. For fans yeah. of the Meyer Cinematic Universe, there was a lot of plot twists. Yeah. Uh, you got to go off to Shelburne Falls for Thanksgiving. Correct. With your soon-to-be in-laws. How was your How was your Thanksgiving? It was great. We also, we started with uh, the couple that started the theater in Amsterdam we worked for, Boom Chicago. Andrew and Saski were in New York, and we had a brunch in the West Village that was fantastic, beautiful restaurant, the Boucherie West, I believe. So we did that, and uh, everyone sort of got their Thanksgiving fixins, and then we drove up, we rented a car, and went to Shelburne Falls uh, the Friday after Thanksgiving. They have an event called Moonlight Magic. I think it was mm -hmm. at one point it was called Moonlight Madness. And then they changed it to Moonlight Magic, which was a terrible move because everyone stumbles when they say it. No one knows right. exactly what it is. So. What it's called, right. But it is so charming and it feels like a Hallmark movie. It does feel like it, maybe initially they just should have started with Moonlight Magic because Shelburne Falls does not strike me as a place where madness reigns. No, 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 no. Yeah. But yeah, it was great. The old Lampson knife factory on the river was open up. A lot of artists have cool spots. Now I take it back. There's an old knife factory. It's an old knife factory. Lampson, I believe the knives aren't made there anymore, but they still have a little shop. We have a couple of Lampson knives at home. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I had mom and dad with me and went very well. I should say the other thing about our Thanksgiving show, we film it on Wednesday. So that is the only day of the year where late night double tapes. We do a show at four and then we do the family show at 6.30 and... I think nothing takes it out of me more than that week where we do four shows in three days. And the final one is that just that extra burden. It's not that I don't think you guys are all going to do great, but it is just uh, family in the workplace, you know, sure. and I want it to go well. And so I was so tired on Thanksgiving because I feel as though it just, the burden <laughs> finally became too much to bear. Yeah. And we were over at my in-laws. I want to thank Tom and Joanne for hosting us once again. But I did that thing where I just walked into a room that no one was in and fell asleep on a couch for 20 minutes before mm. before Axel, uh, the five-year-old agent of chaos, found me. But it was the deepest. It was the highlight of my Thanksgiving was a very deep, I cannot bear being awake anymore, 20-minute nap on a couch. Yeah. I mean, back when you were kind of scumbag in his 30s, you'd drink yep. the odd Red Bull. Do you do that anymore? Do you ever 
be like, I need to power up and power through. You know my wife to be a woman who takes uh, what you put in your body very seriously. Mm-hmm. So Red Bull is very much on the do not imbibe list. Gotcha. With that said, and I say this with the confidence of knowing she doesn't listen to our podcast, I'll drink a Red Bull at work. Okay. I will every now <laughs> and then when, when, when push comes to shove, drink a Red Bull at work. I keep one in the fridge, uh, or I kept one in the fridge at all times. The problem then is uh, Mackenzie, my fiance, would drink it instantly because she works so hard and she's so tired that if I leave it there for her, she will inevitably just keep sucking them down. I also realized, and shame on me for needing three kids to realize this, because I would have told you that my favorite holiday has always been Thanksgiving. I love Mm -hmm. it so much. And I realize the reason I loved it is I was the kid. And especially (laughs) in my dirtbag 30s. What did you call it? Not dirtbag. What did you? Scumbag. 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 Yeah. Yeah. I would have said dirtbag. But in my dirtbag 30s, like that was the dream. I would come home, uh, a man unencumbered uh, by child or spouse, and I would just collapse on a couch, watch football, eat food, drink wine, go out, see old friends at local bars. That was my life, and it was great. And you realize Thanksgiving just gets so much more onerous when you are feeding kids mashed potatoes. (laughs) It just becomes so much less fun. And then there's no let's, you know, drink late in the night because it's not like your kids give you Friday off. Right. Yeah, they're excited because it's also Black Friday. And those kids, those kids love deals. They love deals. <laughs> they love online deals. Well, that was our quick Thanksgiving recap. Now we want you to listen to a person I'd never met before. You know, we have had very few of those on the podcast, but this is the first conversation I ever had with Phil. First conversation you ever had with Phil. Yeah. He is a delight. And before you listen to him, why not let your ears enjoy the dulcet tones of Jeff Tweedy. Hey, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I, I'm good. I wear, um, I'm L.A. You guys are New York and L.A. or? I'm L.A. You're L.A. Okay, so you're also yeah. up early. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so disappointed, though. I got to be honest, Phil, because you could be anywhere, literally anywhere <laughs> in the world. I'm slightly disappointed that we didn't get you in somewhere more exotic. Well, you would have had me in Paris about 36 hours ago, but I just made my way back. I was there for the very disappointing finish of the Rugby World Cup final which you guys probably have no idea was even happening. But it was a big deal in certain parts of the world. Yeah. I will assume then that you are a New Zealand rugby fan. Huge. Huge. And and rugby is like, uh, it's hard to describe how big rugby is in New Zealand, but it's it's up there with the best religions. I, You know, the one thing I'll say, obviously, I, I think as just a sports fan, I am familiar with, I don't want to even guess the name of the dance that the uh, Kiwi. The Haka. The Haka. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Very good, Josh. Yeah. So I'm familiar with that. I also am aware that I can't even think of a second New Zealand sport. I guess you've qualified for maybe a a soccer World Cup. Wow. This is really starting on a, a, in in an interesting place. Um, (laughs) So you have heard of Sedman Hillary, the first man on top of Everest. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Kerry Takanoa. He was up there with uh, Tenzing Norgay. 
Wow, look at you. I'll do it, your brother, but thank you for the acknowledgement. <laughs> and um, yes, he was up there. And the only photograph was taken by Sedman Hillary. So the only photograph we have of that amazing summit climb, I believe it was Christmas Day, is of Tenzing Norgay, who was a Sherpa who went up there with him. Uh, after the English had given it a go and failed a few times, they finally gave the, the Kiwi and the Sherpa a chance to go. And then you would have heard of Kerry Takanua, the beautiful uh, soprano singer. Yeah, ah, yes, so yes. we we uh, we punch above our weight. Uh, Seth. I wasn't. I, mean, I I I feel like you heard me incorrectly. I was just saying I know <laughs> rugby is the big deal there because I can't think of other. I've never heard a New Zealander talk about another sport with any passion other than rugby. Okay, well that's true, but cricket yeah. is up there. Okay, gotcha. And cricket is the second biggest sport in the world after soccer, so it's in the billions. And we play a mean game of cricket. We've got an amazing cricket team. You said it was a disappointing uh, end to the Rugby World Cup. Did, did New Zealand lose in the finals? Yeah, so um, we lost 11 to 12 to South Africa. Um, we're the only two teams that have ever won the World Cup three times. And so whoever won this was going to get the unprecedented record. And um, there's a lot of controversy about the, some of the, the decisions that were made. Um, and we, our captain got sent off with a red card about 18 minutes into the game. So we played 14 against 15 for pretty much most of the match. I'm not making excuses, am I? But anyway, um, (laughs) did you play growing up at all? I did. I actually grew up in the Caribbean. So I grew up with cricket. That was my primary sport from the age of around six to when I went back to New Zealand for high school. And then I played rugby when I got there. But in the West Indies in the 80s, cricket was a religion there. People like Viv Richards, who were, you know, Sir Vivian Richards, I should say. But the uh, West Indian cricket team of the 80s were unbeatable. They were just unbelievable. They, you know, we worshiped them. There were reggae calypso songs written about them. Street names, streets uh, named after them. When you uh, learned how to play cricket in the West Indies, when you brought it back to New Zealand, were you advanced? Were you better than most of your uh, your Kiwi friends? Well, it's funny you should say that because I was just talking to a friend of mine who was in my, in the same team as me. His name is Andrew Lester. So he hears that this kid from is coming from the West Indies, and in those days there was a guy called Joe Ganner. He was seven foot four and the and a bowler, well, the equivalent of a pitcher in baseball. And massive, powerful, very, very fast pitcher slash bowler. My friend, I didn't know he was going to become my friend, but he's like, oh my God, there's this guy coming from the West Indies. We're going to have an amazing attack bowler, you know. And I turn up, I was four foot 11 and about 78 pounds. He was made, and I was white and disappointed because he's thinking, you know, I'm, I'm West Indian. And I sounded like a West Indian, but I didn't look anything like Joel Ganner physically and certainly couldn't um, bowl like it. Yeah, maybe if there were two of you uh, stacked on top of each other. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> it is very funny to show up as a kid who has sort of an exotic backstory and look exactly like everybody who's already there. They must have, yes. I, I get their disappointment. Yeah, it, it, they were majorly disappointed, but the weird thing was I had like the strongest West Indian accent. So I looked exactly like everybody else, but my whole programming and all my references they were all completely different. So I was, it was this weird situation where I looked like everybody, but I couldn't have been more different. It's like I came from another planet. You know, I didn't wear shoes most of the time. I cycled all over the island. I wanted to be local. And then I turned up to this really strict Scottish school where the prefects are wearing kilts and everybody's playing rugby. And I had no idea like about any of this world. It was like, I was, yeah, I was a a real fish out of water. Now, 
Based on that, before you became uh, well-known and people knew you, uh, you know, were from New Zealand, could anybody place you with your accent because it is sort of a, a melange of so many different places? No, I've sort of dealt with that all my life because I lived in Canada for three years. My dad was lecturing at Guelph and McGill for a few years when I was super young. And I lived in Australia for a bit. And then my dad got posted in uh, at Columbia and we lived in Trinidad for a little bit. And I came to America when when I was around 23 or four and I've lived everywhere. So no, I've, I, my whole life, I've just been like, where the hell are you from? Like, <laughs> yeah. what the hell's wrong with your accent? <laughs> They're like, I'd say West Indies, but you're not good enough at cricket. <laughs> yeah. 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 I really wasn't. <laughs> uh, but, but it, they say that if your accent changes before the age of 12, then for the rest of your life, be, you become a chameleon. You just sort of adapt to what you hear. And so I feel like that's happened to me. When I go home to New Zealand for a bit, I get a lot of crap about my accent. And then after a while, I start to sound like a little Kiwi and my accent will get twisted up a wee bit. So it, I don't really belong anywhere, maybe like mid-Pacific or something and some remote island. I yeah, don't know. Our father's from Pittsburgh. And every time he gets back to Pittsburgh, he slips into oh. that. Uh, I mean, that wonderful, terrible accent that is Pittsburgh. But I love Pittsburgh, so by the way. So do we. I, I, yeah. I just think it's so, uh, what a great city. I've been there a number of times. When I rode across America, I went through Pittsburgh and I got the warmest welcome from everybody there. And it has this ruggedness and this rawness to it that I really identify with. Um, and, I, and I think it's just because I come from working class people. So I just appreciate, I mean, how hard is it to get up in Pittsburgh and go to work, <laughs> and literally <Yes>. go to work <laughs> in the winter? I mean, there's a, yes. a bunch of badasses there, really. Yeah. It's also geographically beautiful, which I think people don't quite yes. understand. Like there's so yes. many hills and bridges. And and if you like sort of that old sort of brutalist architecture, yes. you've got that going for it as well. I, I think it's one of the more interesting cities in America because a lot of there's a lot of cities that sort of look the same. And that's one of the things you notice about going to Europe is where Paris or or if you if you travel down to Rome and you look at the distinctive aspects of all of the European cities. I love that Chicago, Pittsburgh, New York, that there, we do have some distinctive cities. And yeah. Pittsburgh's definitely one yeah, of those. Yeah, for sure. You rode your bike across America, and there are so many things you have done, Phil, that I have no interest in. <laughs> I know. Uh, and, 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 and which begs the question, why am I here? Well, yes. I'm thrilled to have you here. <laughs> and I feel like Josh, I think Josh is going to make a, a, basically ask for your bucket list yeah, and just uh, could photocopy it. So one of us is down for pretty much all of it. Seth's an indoor kid. Yeah. Um, by the way, I got to say, I, I really enjoyed your, uh, your interview with Howard. Um, oh, thank Seth. you. Yeah, I thought it was really good. I was jet lagged having just flown back and I couldn't sleep. That's really the only reason I listened to it. No, I love his interviews, and uh, I thought you guys were great together. It was really, really good. But when you have a show on at uh, twelve thirty-seven at night, pretty much your audience, wherever you are, are people who yeah. can't sleep. <laughs> <laughs> that was an interesting part of the conversation too. I just think you know some of the things you said about that, and also just how the world has changed so much with how we get our content and. The fact that you are on at 12.30 really doesn't matter because good content will live somewhere else at some other time. And whether you're jet lagged at three o'clock in the morning, you'll find it. And that's the cool thing about the technology. So yeah, it was a good, good interview. It's interesting, I think, that you know the one thing we still have to sort of watch when it happens is sports. Yes. And you and obviously the whole team over at Amazing Race have really figured something out as well, which is a reality show that both feels like family and also has that sportish 
competition element to it. Yeah. Did you guys know what you were onto at the very beginning with, oh, look at all these things we're bringing together here? Well, th- what I love about the the original idea was just how audacious it was. It was, it, you know, this is back in um, yeah, around 2000 when this was being discussed. And there were a few other people wanting to produce a show like this. But Bertram, who's, who's the executive producer, had done a lot of work overseas. And, and at that point, I had worked in over 60 countries. And there was a team of people that were all really experienced at working overseas. But that said, we were still not sure that something like this could work and would work. And the world was much bigger than than it is now. We weren't as connected. Everything was very linear. We would be in remote places where we couldn't have phone connections. And it was just such a different world. And no, the answer is we we had no idea. We We just didn't know. And then we launched on um, September the 8th, and then, of course, 9-11 happened. Oh. It almost derailed the whole idea of watching people race around the world right out of the gate. So the fact that we were able to come back and that people had a renewed interest in traveling around the world, I think, says a lot about the team. And the fact that we are still fascinated with the idea of packing up a bag and just going and just seeing what happens. Yeah. I mean, I think it also sort of sustained because people have a natural sort of inclination to want to see that, if not to do it. I think everyone, there's something in everyone that wants to do it, that wants to go to all these places and it's just not feasible. So to be able to watch all these people, is just like, is incredible. Also, I'll I'll just say I'm uh, friends with Justin Canoe and Zev Glassenberg. Yeah. 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 Uh, They're buddies of mine. And it was so, it was so delightful to like, I mean, I've hung out with those guys. I've seen them. These were contestants on two seasons of the show. And it was just great to see them, sort of just the two of them hanging out as someone who knows them and is friendly with them to sort of see them just as a team when it's just the two of them and have have that look in at their lives. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, the fish out of water thing is huge on Amazing Race. And I love that. And I love my favorite contestants are the ones that have never had a passport, never left their state. Yeah. Like, uh, you, you know, going back to David and Mary, who were coal miners from Kentucky, uh, going back into season 10, and just to see them like wide-eyed being in some foreign place, which might as well be another planet to them. You know, it's like they've never seen anything like this in their life. And to be able to witness that up close, you're absolutely right. There's this vicarious nature to being able to watch a show like Amazing Race. And then also just that we've been able to say to people, hey, you know, this there's a lot to see in the world. There's a lot of really cool things to do. And you don't have to be as scared as uh, the media wants you to be. And I've always said that for years, you know, when so many Americans saw the rest of the world, it was when something was going wrong, there was a flood, there was political unrest, there was something terrible happening. And so people's perception of the whole world was, why the hell would I leave America and go somewhere where all this crazy stuff is happening? And 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 that's what they were being bombarded with, still bombarded with uh, constantly. Because if it bleeds, it leads. You know, it's like you don't do the story about David and Mary, the Kentucky coal miners going around the world and having a great time with local people. It's more, hey, let me tell you something that's gone wrong. And so I love that we've been able to at least share with people that as safe as America is, it's not the safest country in the world. It's not even in the top 10. And that there are lots of safe places to travel around the world. And it's okay to get on a plane and go to some places doesn't mean that you can't get an ass whooping somewhere. Right. But you could find that in America, too. You <laughs> sure can. <laughs> Josh and I did one episode of a travel show once called The Getaway, where it was oh. just in one city. And Josh yeah. and I used to live and work in Amsterdam. So we did three days. I think it was three days of shootings. That, that feels right. Yeah. It was the most exhausting three days of my life. Yeah. 
And I think that probably there are some people who don't understand what it takes to make shows like yours who say, oh, my God, Phil, you must have, you get to travel the world. You must get to see so much. But I can't even imagine what your day-to-day is like and how little you get to actually enjoy the places you're at. Well, you have to enjoy the experience, I think, you know, (laughs) uh, and you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think the audience is becoming more aware now just because more and more people are making content, more and more people are becoming aware of how hard it is to actually create yes. content. <laughs> um, but, you know, we typically shoot 12 shows in 21 days, which is really unheard of. Oh. And we had a season <laughs> where we shot, uh, where we filmed, we traveled 75,000 miles in season five. And that's uh, like going around the equator three times, because roughly once around the equator is 25,000 miles, something like that which is why you put a geosynchronous uh, satellite that distance above the earth. That's how you get the Clark ring. But anyway, um, it's a long, long damn way. So you're getting on and off planes. And the other thing that people, because they, they have this perception, you're absolutely right. Like I'm sitting around a pool with a pina colada, which by the way, I, I, it's not really my thing, right. but you know, <laughs> what the hell? Not that I wouldn't try it, but no, I mean, we're literally like running from one destination to another. I have to go everywhere they go, but I've got to try to stay slightly ahead of them. And that can get very difficult when flights get delayed and airplanes made to take off 30 minutes before the contestant team flight. And then I don't have that lead anymore because the bolts have fallen off the wheel and we get stuck for two hours and then the teams get ahead of me. I mean, it's, yeah, it's a lot different than people perceive it. But listen, I also see that as crazy as all the travel is, it's so exciting to be a part of this. We get absolutely exhausted, but it's also incredibly rewarding. Yeah, it really is like a once in a lifetime opportunity every time we go out. And, you know, we've shot 36 seasons now. I just can't imagine doing another show. Like if I was stuck in a studio for 36 seasons, I'd have to find ways of staying stimulated. You know, where I am is never the same. And I really love that aspect of it. It's always so different everywhere we go. Do you ever go to places that you don't have really a chance to truly experience it and sort of tap it in your head of like, oh, I want to come back here and spend some time. And then have you actually definitely. done that? Or is it? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Um, yeah, definitely. I, and and as I mentioned, I was lucky enough to start traveling with my parents at three when you had to wear a suit and polish your shoes before you got on the flight. Now people get on with their stinky <laughs> yeah. uh, flip flops. and Very you know, little is polished. On, uh, yeah, very little and, air travel and, and way days. too much uh way too much arm hair and and uh arm odor yeah on flights these days you're right uh, you know what people really have, have over focused on the foot but arms aren't doing great either these days <laughs> i you know what it is the chairs have gotten more narrow and i mean i almost want to like hand them some kind of trimmer or something because the hair does yeah. kind of it sticks out that even when they've got their arms down there's a lot of hair coming out and um it's too much sometimes yeah i i love the old days when we actually used to wear like at least something that uh covered up the body <laughs> yeah uh, fair i just uh, we're seeing too much uh on these flights uh, just gonna say but uh, yeah, yeah, no, I uh, I love uh, I love the fact that we get to do what we do, and we work with a great group of people, and the attrition rate is very high. There's not a lot of people that were you know were there from way back in 2001 when we launched. But yeah, it's it's extremely rewarding. It's so funny. So I've been doing my show for uh, nine years in the same studio, and I think maybe two people have left. <laughs> so wow. it does speak to the difference of when it's a, yeah. when it's a home game um, or when it's a travel. So wait, uh, I do want to go back. So uh, when you're little, you travel, uh, you know, for your parents' uh, work, and you're in places like the Caribbean. Was that the family trip for you guys, or did you also travel 
as a, as a unit and go different places. I really have to give my parents credit for always wanting to explore and giving me or making me curious about the world and people. One of the more memorable trips I have as a young kid was my parents bought a 1970 Westphalia Volkswagen with the pop-up roof. And my sister is a little bit younger than me, would sleep up front. There was a little bed that went up over the two front seats and then the roof would pop up and I slept there and my parents in the double bed. And my dad being a scientist um, and being super curious and always testing us with geological knowledge with whatever we were looking at said, we're going to try to visit every national park in North America. And we did a 12,000 mile trip across North America, camping, visiting people all over the country, Yellowstone, Grand Canyon, and all the small parks in between. And to this day, it's so etched in my memory. It's given me that wanderlust. And I credit them for that. They were always very, very good at talking to anybody and everything was possible. And that curiosity that I have for people, you know, is extended into my work. I just find people so fascinating. And I just love that they had this ability to talk to local farmers, but they could also mix with politicians. And that was a gift that they gave my sister and I that I will forever be grateful for. Hey, we're going to take a quick break and hear from some of our sponsors. This episode of Family Trips is brought to you by Nissan. Posh, these days too many people have to settle for the next best thing, especially when it comes to choosing a car. Yeah, but at Nissan, there's a vehicle type for everyone, for every driver who wants more. Whether you want more adventure, more electric, more action, more guts, or more turbocharged excitement, Nissan is here to make sure you get it. Because Nissan is all about giving people a whole spectrum of thrills to choose from with a diverse lineup of vehicles. Sports cars to sedans to EVs, pickups, crossovers with Nissan's diverse lineup. Anyone can find something to help them reach their more. What are you looking for more of, Josh? I like a nice ride. I like a nice sound system. I like something that's, yeah, that's comfortable. You like to have room to load up a bunch of gear, go somewhere, do an adventure. I do. I'm never happier than when I have sort of a, a full car, a roof rack on my car. Makes me happy. And all I need is a cup holder for an iced coffee. And Nissan can provide you with both of those things. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode of Family Trips and for the reminder to find your more. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. We are supported by Airbnb. Hey, Pashi. Yes, Ufi. We've been coming to Pittsburgh for about 10 years with mom and dad. This is our first year staying in an Airbnb. And the differences are remarkable. It's great. It just feels like we're in a house that's ours. You just went and made a couple of cocktails for mom and dad? Yeah, I didn't have to pay uh, $22 for each of them. And look, we've been bringing cocktails to them since we were, what, four and six? As soon as we could carry a glass without spelling. There you go. <laughs> so uh, that's been lovely. It's been very cozy. We all have our own bedrooms, and yet we're uh, close enough to hear dad's phone go off. Yeah. We're also just like right in a neighborhood that meant so much to dad growing up uh, were, you know, steps away from a happening little spot. If you lived here, you would be delighted to live here. And the other thing is everybody who lives here can hear dad's phone. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you to Airbnb. We're having a very special time in Pittsburgh. It's so funny. I was wondering, are they proud of you for uh, your success? And based on the childhood they gave you, I feel like if you hadn't been the host of Amazing Grace, they would be deeply disappointed. (laughs) Like after every, all the tools we gave you, there's one job we built you for. Well, you know, there was a little disappointment early on because my grandparents, working class people, 
never got a chance to go to college. And my grandfather got a scholarship. He was the brightest kid in his class to go to a Catholic school in the biggest city down in the South Island of New Zealand. And he wasn't given a choice. Well, maybe he didn't want to go. He's too scared. I don't know. But he ended up going to work at 14 and one of the brightest people that I have ever met in my life and extremely well read. And then my parents both have the equivalent of doctorates. So the idea with this, you know, I'm the oldest son. I'm going to, of course, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to become a doctor, a lawyer or something. And then they, they say, what do you want to do? And I go, I, I want to work in television. And um, I, I just have to say, it didn't really go down that well. Um, and I went straight out of high school because there was no degree at college to be like in broadcasting or anything. And the only way into TV was you had to literally start making coffee, dragging cables, sweeping floors. And that's what I did. And so the idea that I didn't go to university straight out of high school, it didn't go down well. So my parents are like, okay, you want to do that? That's fine. Uh, but you're financially on your own. We're not, uh, we're not supporting this madness. And um, I literally made coffee the first time, first day at work. I was at a, a tele little television studio in Christchurch. I swept floors and I dragged cables along the sidelines of sports matches behind the camera operators. I started from the lowest level. And uh, I think in later years, they realized that maybe it was all right. But, um, and I did go to university for a little while just to show them that I could get A's. <laughs> hey, look, yeah, here's some A's, but can I just carry on with this TV thing? I really like it. So it turns out, yeah, yeah. you're like, I look, I don't know if I need to read all this literature to pull these cables. I feel like it might uh. be instinctive. I will say our parents who are probably listening, we did the opposite. We made them pay for our college. Oh, well, look at you. <laughs> and then we decided we wanted to go into television. <laughs> okay, so you okay. did it. You what you did was far more decent. <laughs> Well, my brother came along after me, and by the time he came through, there was a degree, that you, a broadcasting degree that you could get at university. So he went that path. You know, he got that degree, you know. Mine was literally experience on the job, and I really wanted to be a cinematographer, and I cut a three-year apprenticeship down to about eight months. I started shooting, and so at 19, I was shooting news stories and hanging out of helicopters and covering news stories, and then I turned up to a terrible accident and realized that I didn't have the guts for shooting uh, news stories. I needed to be in entertainment. I needed to be at a place with a camera where people wanted me there. And then I was at a Christmas party and having a few drinks and someone didn't turn up for an audition for a national show that had been on for 20 years with three hosts and they were looking for a new host. And anyway, long story short, I ended up getting off of the job. And so I ended up in front of the camera off the back of having a couple of beers at a Christmas party. <laughs> you got a job because someone didn't show up for an audition. So they were just like, well, you're here. Well, I, I always did improv theater, you know, okay. all the way through school. I love improv and, you know, had uh, done quite a bit of acting at school, mostly as a way to meet girls, but I did love, love, love improv. And so when they were doing directing training and camera operating training, they would need talent. They needed people in front of the camera to like, you know, set up interviews and stuff. So for whatever reason, they kept throwing me in the chair to interview people. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, I guess this producer saw me and thought maybe he could do this. I actually get paid for it. So yeah. well, <laughs> that's how it happened. Well, well. Is the move to the States, was that sort of brought about by, oh, you know, there there might be limited opportunities or, or in a place like New Zealand or what brought it about? Well, back in those days, there was only three networks when I was 23, 24. And um, I had done a lot of live TV. I did a show called 345 Live. 
where I interviewed anybody who came to New Zealand. So if UB40 came or uh, Stallone or Redhead Kingpin or um, Skid Row, if anybody came to New Zealand. By the way, I I wish you'd kept giving examples. Each of those examples (laughs) made me happier than the next. Oh, well, because it makes you you feel younger than me, right? Well, I just was like, oh, I know exactly. I just loved where you were working. I know what year it was. It made me very delighted. Yeah, so it was a live show. I did it in 1990, and we did over 200 live shows every day at 345. All right. Actually, if you go on uh, YouTube, you can see there's a a clip there with a very stoned uh, redhead kingpin live on the air. We didn't know what to do. I also interviewed Millie Vanilli, like literally just before they got busted. And the dreadlock, uh, Fabrice was twirling his dreadlock and it came detached from his head live on TV. And the manager, I'm watching the manager, like pointing at his head, like, because it was an extension. <laughs> the best is, and looking back at that time, the manager was like, in, you know, in hindsight, that was the least of our problems. Yeah. <laughs> fake fake dreadlocks. Those are the good old days. Did yeah. you uh, not, I mean, I'm really taking a tangent here, but while you were interviewing <laughs> Millie Vanilli, did you think, I don't know if these guys sang those songs? Well, I tell you what gave me, what gave me pause was my mom being a music teacher, she had 80 students in Antigua. And in the Caribbean, we used to go to a, a, a music competition in a show that was on in Trinidad, where they would get all the talented young kids from around the Caribbean to come and compete. I was trying to connect with uh, Fabrice because he said he had grown up in Guadeloupe. And so I knew the kids and I knew, we knew everybody. And I, w- I started like naming people. And it was like, it was just like, there was nothing. And I remember thinking, but if you were in Guadeloupe, you would know these music people. Like, so... I didn't think anything more. I mean, I figured maybe he just didn't want to answer the question or whatever. But um, yeah, it was it was very strange. And I and I came to New York. I left New Zealand because I was like, I want a new adventure. It was my wife and producing partner, and we just literally turned up to New York. And I was so naive about how the industry worked. I managed to talk my way into Howard Stern's agency at Don Buckwell, and I was sitting with the casting director. And sorry, not the casting director, the agent, who was. I think a little pissed off that some New Zealand guy kept hounding him on the phone. He's sort of like, what do you want? You know, I said, have you ever met a New Zealander? And he said, no. I said, well, just give me a few minutes. Anyway, while I was there, the phone rang and they were looking for a new host for MTV's Most Wanted. And he said, what are you doing right now? And I said, nothing. (laughs) He said, go down to 1515 Broadway and go see Ted Demi, and I think a woman by the name of Julie Mossberg, who was a casting director. Go, go see them and tell them that you're there to audition and that I sent you. So I was okay. So I go down and I sit down and they say, all right, we want you to pretend that you're interviewing UB40. <laughs> and I was about to say that I might've had a joint with UB40 and interviewed UB40 in New Zealand, but I stopped myself. I thought, no, it's nobody here in America knows what the hell 345 Live is. So I went, yeah, I could do that. So I literally had just interviewed them like a couple of months before. So it was all fresh. I did the interview and I felt like it went really well. And I go home and the agent calls me and he goes, oh, and I had a, a, a meeting with William Morris in two weeks. I didn't know William Morris from Don Buckwood or any of the agency. I knew nothing. And, and the guy says, uh, I got some great news. I said, oh, I get the job. He goes, no, you got a call back. I said, a callback. He goes, yeah, I, what the hell's a callback? In New Zealand, you don't have a callback. There's nobody to call. I mean, it's like <laughs> there's only a few people. So so uh, I said, oh, that's a good thing. He goes, no, 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 that's really good. I said, well, what do I do next time? He goes, oh, no, no, just do the same thing. I was like, okay, welcome to America. So 
literally went back five times. They offered me the job. And then I have to go to human resources down the bottom in the basement of 1515 Broadway. I turn up, there's this woman there and she goes, uh, all right, hand me your papers. I hand over my New Zealand passport. She goes, you have a license? I go, no, you got a social security number. I said, no. She goes, do you have any documentation to work here in America? I went, no. She went, well, you're not working here. <laughs> so I never got the job. Wow. Really? That was it? I never got the job. And if it hadn't been for Howard Stern I think, and, and Robin, I think I would have gone crazy because they were like my only friends and I would listen to them every day. But I literally did anything and everything to survive during those years where it was actually 18 months. Uh, spent all my money trying to get a lawyer to take my case before I finally got a job hosting on VH1 and then later on FX when FX launched in 94. I actually am a little happy you didn't get that first job because otherwise I feel any young actor listening to this story would think the key is just to be in the right place at the right time. You were at a party, someone doesn't show up, I'm in an office, the phone rings. It was. <laughs> so I, thank God there was a little bit of struggle or yeah. else uh, yeah. people would, would be it took It took America to... To cut me down, yes, Seth, exactly. you know, like just to, to give me a reality check. If someone asked me to add, to pretend like I was interviewing UB40, I would really be like, so do you guys like red wine? And uh, <laughs> red, red wine? And Grace is hunt. there really a rat in the kitchen? <laughs> yeah. And what are we going to do? And yeah. <laughs> Were there originally 40 of you in the group? <laughs> yeah, and do you know, you know where that name comes from, right? I don't actually. No. If I'm not mistaken, it's the unemployment form in England. Oh. It's called a UB40. Oh, wow. I like that. Yeah, yeah. I, I have to fact check that, but um, hey, you know I, what? I think let's that's not. what it is. Let's just leave <laughs> yeah, it let's not. Let's you know what? If you're listening, if you don't like that, go fact check it yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah go, go listen to another show. <laughs> you know, we're we doing enough. We're anything. doing enough for you. Hey, yeah. you, uh, you mentioned your wife is uh, your producing partner. And I'm wondering, did you guys first connect over your professional similarities, or did she also have your same sort of adventuresome, wanderlust spirit? Well, she says that she sort of picked me out of a catalog. We worked on a show together that really speaks to, I think, the New Zealand culture, a show that you really should watch. It's just a beautiful, beautiful show called That's Fairly Interesting. So in America, we watched the show. I don't know if you remember, it was called That's Incredible. Do you remember that show? Yes, yeah. of course, of course. We loved how Americans thought everything was incredible. <laughs> um, and sometimes things weren't really that incredible, but Americans would still call it that's incredible. Yeah, it's American exceptionalism, Phil. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's oh my yeah. God, that's incredible. And so in New Zealand, you're not allowed to really say anything's incredible. Everything is, you've just got to, we have a thing called, Peter Jackson talks about it. It's called tall poppy syndrome. No poppy is allowed to grow up in the field higher than any other. Otherwise, it gets cut off yes. in New Zealand. So everything has to be understated. So if the three of us went to the pub and had a drink and you said, hey, Phil, what'd you do on the weekend? And I said, I, I got stoned with UB40, had a few beers and went to the moon. You guys in New Zealand would say, oh yeah, that's really interesting. You would not say that's incredible. You would just say that's really interesting. So um, there was a show called That's Really Interesting and they were looking for a new host. My wife was a researcher, my then girlfriend. Well, she was my girlfriend. I hadn't even met her. Anyway, so she's looking for a new host for the show. In a catalog. Helping. And she flicks through and she goes, oh, that, that, he, looks a little, he looks a little tidy. And uh, from the South Island, uh, you know, looks a, got a little bit of a farmer, South Island farmer-esque kind of look about him. So uh, she put my name forward and then I went up and had an interview and uh, we worked together and then immediately we just connected. You know, she's very adventurous. She's incredibly um, sporty, uh, always up for anything. And we were friends before anything happened and we just liked each other. And it was only a couple of years after that that we headed overseas together with 
packed up everything, sold everything, and ended up with a couple of backpacks and headed overseas. That's fairly interesting. Sounds like a joke show that Flight of the Concords would have been on. Well, it's funny you should say that because it is exactly, it's perfect for Flight of the Concords, yeah. those guys. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it does. You would feel like in an episode of that show, they would say that was one of their credits and you would just think, well, that is the funniest made up name for a New Zealand show. And yet, of course, yeah, it's real. But it's so, it's so perfect for, for us, you know, and it's, it just speaks so clearly to the difference between American culture and New Zealand culture great. at that time. I remember I was talking to Peter Jackson. I did an interview with him and he was saying that when he was doing the three movies at once, you know, New Line Cold and asked him how it was going. And in typical New Zealand fashion, Peter goes, oh, yeah, that's no, it's yeah, it's it's uh, it's going pretty well. Pretty, pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty good. And they were like pushing him. Well, yeah, but I mean, are you excited about the footage? And the thing, no, 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 yeah, 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 yeah. No, we, say, we say a lot of, yeah, no. We say, yeah, no, a lot. So we go, yeah, no, uh, no, no, yeah, yeah, no. It's, it's gone pretty well. So, uh, so anyway, apparently New Line gets off the phone. I'm like, holy crap. All hell is breaking loose down there in New Zealand with these hobbits. And, and Peter Jackson, he's losing control. He's, he hasn't got the reins. And so they call Peter Jackson's agent and freak him out. And Peter Jackson's agent calls Peter and goes, Peter, what the fuck is going on? Like, what, what the hell's happening? Why are you not being honest with me about what's happening? I heard it's a disaster. What, what are you talking about? He goes, I just spoke to the New Line guys. They said you, you're, yeah, knowing, and you don't really know, you know, you're not excited. And he goes, no, nah, everything's fine, mate. Everything's good. It'll, it'll all be fine. And it was. Yeah, yeah sure was. <laughs> I just, I'm glad that he did not let uh, the hobbits act like New Zealanders because that, uh, that film would have been a lot less interesting if they the whole time were like, oh, yeah. Man. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah, it's just a ring, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah, it's like, I've seen a ring like it before. <laughs> it's a gold one. I mean, yeah, yeah, no. Nah. So you work. have, yeah. a, uh, you guys have one daughter. And uh, yep. what were your, you know, again, obviously she grew up with these parents who uh, loved to travel. What sort of trips did you go on as a family? Well, we made a rule that just because we were having a kid, we weren't going to let it interfere <laughs> with right. our uh, adventures. So we found all kinds of creative ways of taking our daughter out on trips where a lot of parents would leave their kids behind like, oh, we got to find a babysitter. We'll leave them with the in-laws. No, with our daughter was like, no, nope, you're going in the backpack. You're going with us. We'd go bike riding. She'd go on the back. I got a trailer. I remember here in Santa Monica, I was going up the hill. She was about seven. I had her in the back of the trailer. And she was, you know, seven, not really that keen to get out on adventures. And so we used to draw fairy maps. And we'd say that the, the fairies had left something at the tree up the top of uh, towards Mulholland. And then my wife would race ahead and hide the treat. And then my daughter would be following this treasure map that we drew. And um, that would get her to the tree. And that was the turnaround point. And then we'd, she'd have to go searching for the for the tree. I never thought about the fact that she could have accidentally put her hands next to a rattlesnake. But anyway, um, she found the <laughs> treats and uh, and then that kept her occupied until we got home. And they were healthy treats, uh, just saying. So sure, yeah, sure. Oh, trust me. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. It might have been a couple of M&Ms. <laughs> now I'm going up the hill once and, uh, and I'm struggling because she's seven now. You know, it's like getting ridiculous. We probably should have stopped when she was five. And this guy slowly goes past me on the climb and my daughter says to me, Dad, what the hell's wrong with you? Were you some kind of wimp or something? You're going to let that guy go by you? <laughs> and the guy laughed so hard. <laughs> At which point you're like, you know, a lot of seven-year-olds ride their own bike. <laughs> Actually, that's a good point. That's a good point. But the first time she was ever on the set was when she was three weeks old. We were with a sound recorder that I've been working with for over 30 years. And there's a photograph of him holding her when she was three weeks old. Well, 
Now, after we, we produced Tough as Nails, we're still working with the same sound recorders and our daughter is working as a story producer and the two of them are working on the same show. So I'm, I'm destined to take them back to Queenstown where the shot was taken and have my daughter hold Jim, who's not that tall, <laughs> in his arms and cradle him like a three-week-old. year old, a three week old. <laughs> How often has she been back to New Zealand? I know that's obviously a, not an easy trip, but uh, is that something you do every year as a family or...? Every year. Yeah, Every right. year we meet uh, in the Coromandel. We haven't missed since 89 together as a family. What's the Coromandel? Coromandel. So um, do you know New Zealand at all? Uh, no, want to go, the, never been, and yeah, don't yeah. really. Listen. Haven't done my research. You guys go to New Zealand. I will, yeah, I will set you up. Right, okay, New Zealand, great. it's one flight out of LA. And by the way, uh, Seth, there's a direct flight now out of New York. You can fly, it's a long way. Yeah. But you can take a direct flight, literally from New York now. Uh, occasionally, you have to stop down to get a little extra fuel, but that w- shouldn't worry you. But um, <laughs> it's a it's a direct flight, and uh, and out of L.A., where we live here in Santa Monica, I see that bird, that silver bird, going back and forth in New Zealand twice a day. And every time I see it, I'm like, I should be on that flight. And our daughter has been going since she was three weeks old and, and uh, every year never missed. And she feels very much Kiwi. She was born in New York when we were living there, but uh, she definitely sees, you know, feels like a Kiwi as well. So what did you say though? Again, the, is Coromandel a place? Yeah. So Coromandel is, it's the east of, of Auckland. Auckland is the biggest city. It's not the capital, but it's up the top of the North Island. New Zealand is two islands, a South Island and a North Island. It's about the length of Japan, UK. Yeah, it's this beautiful spot. It's about a hundred mile drive from Auckland Airport, and stunning. Uh, it's one of my favorite places in the world. I've you know I've been lucky enough to see a hundred and forty something countries, and I still, and not just because I'm from New Zealand, but I still rate New Zealand as one of the most beautiful places for sure. There's a lot packed into a small area. Yeah. I always eventually do this in these uh, podcasts. I'm just going to dial it back to the Westphalia days when oh, you're yeah. a kid and you're you're trying to hit all these national parks. What what stands out to you from that other than sort of the overarching how great it was to see all these people? Do you have any specific memories from that trip of parks that stand out? I do, and I just found my dad's collection of ectochrome photographs mm. and when I saw them, I, I just love ectochrome. I just love photography. I could stare into beautiful photographs wherever. I just love them, having them around me. And um, when I saw my dad's slides and we projected them, a lot of memories flooded back. And being at the camps and the excitement of seeing that the pool had a slide at the, you know, the camp. And one night when a bear started shaking the Volkswagen and could have clawed me out of my, uh, out of my little pop-up room in the top of the camper and thinking I was protected up there with, with this, <laughs> the thin bit of canvas. And, you know, this crazy thing happened. I always had this memory of hiking down into the Grand Canyon with my dad. And I was about five, I guess. And I remember as we were descending, there was a rattlesnake on the path. And there were two guys coming up from below. And we both stopped and we talked about what we were going to do. And we decided we were going to let the snake just move and then we would go. Anyway, my dad befriended these two guys. And I think there were a couple and we arranged that they would come over and have dinner with us that night. And I just distinctly remember meeting them. I remember the situation with the snake. And I remember my, how my parents were just, they're just so 
like they're always reaching out to people and just like, hey, come and have coffee or come and have a dinner or whatever. And which I've tried to do in my own life. And I never forgot that. And then about four years ago, I got a, an email. It was from this guy. And he said, I'm just wondering, are you the same Philip that I met on the path in the Grand Canyon back in 1972? And you were with your dad and we stopped with the rattlesnake. And I just, I couldn't wow. believe it. It's like, we, we love watching you. He's still with the same guy. And, and it was just this great moment of connecting, you know, the past with the future and just how important it is to travel and how important it is to connect and to get out of the resorts and meet people on the trail like that, who are also visitors, but also just immerse yourself. That's what I love about being on races. When we work with the local drivers, I'm like, where do you drink coffee in the morning? You know, when we're yeah. in, in, in Bangkok, where do you like to go for a run? Uh, where do you go for a drink? You know, it's just such a rewarding thing. And my wife is so good at that. We went for our honeymoon. We went to Peru. Yeah. And we stayed at very nice places. And the concierges would send us to these very fancy restaurants. And at some point we had a guide who was taking us, you know, to Machu Picchu. And, and my wife just said, we need to go someplace where you would eat. Yep. Because it was, at some point we realized we were going to leave and not actually know what Peruvian food tasted like. And yep. I think about the rotisserie chicken place we went to yep. all the time because it was so perfect and we would have walked right past it. And that is such a good instinct to ask locals because I'm sure they see us in our restaurants getting sort of a, you know, a scallop with foam on it and thinking, these dummies. <laughs> you know? I mean, that's a great lesson from your wife. Seriously, I hear a lot of people, they say they go on holiday and they'll go to like, they'll go to a resort, but they never leave the resort. And I don't judge them. I mean, some people just need to get away and blob out on the beach. I mean, it's not my thing, but I also don't judge it. But I do feel like sometimes people say they've, oh, where have you been? Oh, I've been to Mexico or I've been to Costa Rica where then, then you find out that they never actually went to like, you're in Costa Rica with some of the best coffee in the world. And you didn't go to a local coffee shop to like, just be with locals and have like that experience of having coffee. You're missing out on something. You've traveled all that way. Otherwise you might as well be in Florida somewhere in some resort. You know what I mean? It's like, why did you go there? And why are you going there? And like I said, I don't want to judge, but I do think that some people just don't know what they don't know about what they're missing out on. Hey, we're going to take a quick break and hear from some of our sponsors. We are supported by Marine Layer. And I want to start with a very important date, Josh. Please. December 18th. If you order from Marine Layer by December 18th, you're going to get it by Christmas. And Josh, you're here to tell people the loved ones in your life would be so happy to receive Marine Layer. They'll be so happy because their stuff is so soft. It's crazy, Soof. I mean, it makes for the perfect gift and it's all thanks to the San Francisco-based Marine Layer. To spread holiday cheer, our listeners get a 15% off discount with our exclusive link. Just head to marinelayer.com slash trips. And we're talking sweaters, tees, overshirts, beanies, you name it. I am now a happy wearer. Is that the right term, Josh? A wearer of Marine Layer? Yeah. It sounds wrong, but it's right. I am so excited to let my loved ones wear the absurdly soft stuff that I also put on every week. Hey, the best part about Marine Layer right now, they have free shipping and returns for an entire year, no questions asked, so I don't have to worry about getting someone the wrong size, color, or anything like that. I think we can all admit that great gifts can be hard to find. Look no further than Marine Layer. For a limited time, get 15% off at marinelayer.com slash trips. 
That's marinelayer.com slash trips for 15% off your entire order, saving your closet one shirt at a time. This episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. I am a foodie to the core. You know that's true, Pashi. Yeah, you are. Whether it's in the kitchen, trying out a new recipe, or checking out the latest trendy restaurant, and I can earn rewards every time I braise a lamb shank or devour the chef's special at my favorite eatery with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. I gotta say, I love going out. Elf, one of my favorite restaurants in the world out here in Los Angeles. They were closed for a while. They're open again. We're going to Elf. We're trying to see if they're open for Christmas. Pinto Garden Thai food in New York. Josh, you know I love Thai food. And would it surprise you to know I order the same thing every time and it's the best and uh, Alexi rolls her eyes, but I don't care because now I earn four times points when you go out for dining or order takeout and restaurant delivery. Plus, earn two times points when you shop for or order your groceries. Think of all the rewards you'll earn every time you make pasta primavera or grill a steak or bake an apple pie. Just make sure your treadmill is in working order. The Altitude Go card earns two times points at gas stations and EV charging stations as well as on streaming services. Go to usbank.com slash Altitude Go to learn more about how you can earn 20,000 bonus points worth $200 if you spend $1,000 in the first 90 days of opening your account. Eat out or eat in with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Visit usbank.com slash Altitude Go to apply. Limited time offer. The creditor and issuer of this card is U.S. Bank National Association pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply. You must be good at, at sort of turning down the volume on what you referenced earlier in this podcast. I'm sure when you go to a resort, there is a message that you hear from the resort of, yeah, I you could, but we it's not that safe. Right. And you must be very good at having traveled the world and realizing that ultimately places are a lot safer than we're led to believe. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of resorts are motivated to keep you there, right? They want you of to course. rent the paddle boat and the and the windsurfer and the and the jet ski and stay for the buffet and $50 yeah. all you can eat and all of that. I mean, I, I get it. It's a business. But you're absolutely right. I mentioned to you, I just got back from a trip. So my wife's best friend since they were two years old, she did her master's in the mafia down in Sicily. And she was celebrating her birthday and invited us. And we, you know, my wife is spontaneous. She's like, let's go. So we just went. And then a friend of ours lives in the Pyrenees and right on the border, you know, with Spain and, and France. And where I had, when I biked around France, I went right through the Pyrenees and uh, wanted to go back, so we went there. And then my then we went to MIPCOM because that's where the television festival is. And then I have a cousin who lives in Geneva. And we just we just kept following these. And because of the ability to be able to work from anywhere, we ended up in Paris, rented a place near Victor Hugo, which is near the Arc de Triomphe. And we just like, let's just live like locals for a week and we'll work during the day. We'll go out for walks, we'll go to coffee. We, so we just met so many people just walking around the street. You get to know the neighborhood and you feel like you're a part of it for just a week. And man, I wouldn't swap that for any resort or any expensive hotel. It was awesome. Just really felt like, wow, this is what it would be like to live here. There was a grizzly bear that was was shaking the West Valley. Yeah, there was a grizzly bear. And I, you know, when you don't know what you don't know, I just figured I was safe up there. And then I couldn't work out why my dad wanted to uh, get me out of the little bunk bed and pull the roof down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, you could just smell some food in the in the Volkswagen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gave us a little bit of a shake. Was there ever, I mean, other than grizzly bear 
tension? Was there ever any tension when you're driving 12,000 miles in a family in a van? I remember how nervous we all got when there would be like bikies because the Volkswagen is super slow and there would be like big gangs of leather clad bikies going down the highway. And I remember just being so nervous that, you know, it was going to be like, uh, what was that terrible, crazy, horrible movie battle truck? Do you remember that? Oh, God, no, but that sounds so funny. Also, we call them bikers, and I'm going to start calling them bikies because that makes it so much less scary. Bikers will be furious to be called bikies. It's really (laughs) great. That's true. (laughs) It's wonderfully emasculating. I would like to apologize to all bikers for saying (laughs) that you're bikies. Those are bikies. Bikies, yeah. yeah. No, I just remember being petrified, and and then at some point my dad was like, okay, I think we might just uh, stop here and fill up with some gas. (laughs) We're like, pulled off the side of the road. Yeah. But you know what? The the reality is they were, just look scary in there. Yeah, yeah. Outfits. They just look. They're on, they they're enjoying the open road. Yeah, just they as could much as you care are. less about us. <laughs> yeah. You and your sister are close in age, and then your brother's a bit younger. Yeah. My brother's thirteen years younger. He's a musician. My sister runs a, a tourism college in Auckland. Um, we were very tight when I was young. We grew up. Unfortunately, I had like in the seventies had long hair down to my set to my shoulders that looked a little bit like I was a girl for a little bit. That wasn't good. <laughs> it didn't go down too well, but you know, it was the seventies and it was, you know, that long hair thing was in. Oh yeah. You're allowed. Yeah. yeah I oh, mean, yeah. back when you guys were born, I was, you know, just getting into the long hair. Josh had, trust me, Josh in a time where nobody had long hair. We're talking early to mid nineties uh, had hair down to his butt. So I was also in the musical hair in college. Uh, so it's sort of, but I feel like it was long even before I auditioned for that. Musical. I think you might've got the part because you <laughs> already had the hair. Were you successful in your dating endeavors at all? Josh with that has hair always to- done very well. Josh has always done very well. Uh, yeah. I sort of had one, you know, one girlfriend through most of, uh, college and i feel like yeah she didn't she didn't mind the long hair okay um yeah yeah good and you guys are still looking very healthy in the hair department uh just like yeah just just to say yeah thank you yeah josh sets the bar and i'm just trying to keep up but again i got two years on him so you never know what's going to happen in the the two years he has to be real trouble you know um Speaking of, you know, you asked before about going to places and everything my dad had a lifelong dream of going to iceland and mm. it was like a once-in-a-lifetime experience that he really, really wanted. So this last summer, uh, he's 81 now, we took him. And we've been there for Amazing Race a few times. So we revisited some of the, the places that we went to. It was just amazing to be able to give that back to him, you know, and my mom. After all the travel they gave us as kids and they paid all the bills... <laughs> And for us to be able to reciprocate and, and to give them that once in a lifetime opportunity. And we, we circled Iceland for ooh, 10 days. I don't know if I've ever been recognized as much from Amazing Race as specifically. And what was really cool was there was a lot of people that came up to me and said, oh, we saw Iceland on Amazing Race and we decided to come here. And it was at mm. places that I'd been. And I was showing my mom and dad like, hey, this is where we had the mat. And um, this is, you know, I did a stand up here at three o'clock in the morning near the Gulfus waterfall. It was three o'clock in the morning and the sun was still up and I had a drone fly over here and shot a thing right here. And so it was just a payback, you know, for my parents giving me that wonderful love of travel and, and people. So I was really pleased I got to do it. You got to take these chances when you got them because you just, you just don't know. Yeah. It, did it pay off for your dad? Was it what he had hoped it would be? And more. Yeah. And he oh, still talks great. about it. And, um, 
you know, my dad says a lot in a very practical way, being a scientist, he, he says, you know, maybe I've got four or five summers left, you know, when he says it like that. And that's not to say that I'm going to outlive him, but just, he just says it in a practical way. And, and he says, you know, while I'm healthy, I'd love to do as many adventures as I can with you. He calls me PJ. We drove across America together, promoting my book back in 2005, 10 cities in 10 days. We had the best time. I've done so many adventures with him. He was with me when I rode across America. He was with me when I retraced the 1928 Tour de France. He drove. So I feel really lucky that I've had these opportunities with my parents. But to anybody who's listening, who's maybe thinking about doing something with a significant other or a parent or a friend, or you just really got to jump in and go because it can all be taken away so quick. You know, during the pandemic, my mom got sick. I couldn't get on the plane and go see her. You just realize it's just so important anyway. Uh, if you have the opportunity to share those experiences with people, don't put it off. Yeah, it's really good advice. My fiance took her father to Iceland a few years ago. We did a New Year's, Seth and myself and his uh, his now wife and uh, my now fiance years ago. We went to Iceland for New Year's and it was great, but you also had maybe five hours of daylight a day. Yes. And my fiance loved it so much and she really wanted to do a trip with her dad and you know, we're from the Northeast, her father's from the Northeast. And getting to Iceland, it's one of those things that you don't think about it, but yeah. it is, it's easier to get to Iceland than it is to get to LA. Isn't that, it's, isn't it's that crazy? Closer. Yeah. Yeah, it's so crazy. And like there's, you know, you fly direct out of Boston and all yep. of a sudden you're in sort of, you're in a place that is truly otherworldly. It is otherworldly. Yeah. There's some crazy statistic, like half the volcanic eruptions in the last 500 years on earth have happened in Iceland. It's where the, the European plate and the North American tectonic plates meet and you can actually see it. We had the teams diving between them. Wow. And my dad being, like I said, being a scientist and being into geography, it's just awesome. Do you guys all get on like your fiance and Seth's yeah. wife? You, yeah. 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 We're very lucky that way. Yeah, we've done a couple big trips like that. We did Tour Mont Blanc, which is one of the, oh, that yeah. was, I, I can't wait for my kids to be old enough to do it because yeah. uh, they would be impossible. Literally, when I think about Tour Mont Blanc now and yes. and them, I just hear whining. But it was one of the great trips of my life. And, and you know, real, again, credit to, to both uh, Josh and my wife, who are the kind of people who think those are better trips than just going and sitting somewhere. And I think about it more fondly than certainly any hotel vacation I've ever had. Well, it's what's interesting about trips in general is the ones that are perfect and go according to plan, where everything is like itemized on the piece of paper and someone goes, okay, today we're going to do this and that. And it's like, those are the trips you don't really remember. What you remember is the bear shaking the Volkswagen and the rattlesnake. And you remember getting trapped on the island because there was a hurricane coming and you couldn't catch the flight. And you went to the airport and it was flooded and, and the flights were canceled and you had to go back to the hotel and huddle with these strangers and you got to know them. <laughs> and the, you know what I mean? It's, you, you have to put yourself out there to get, again, to get out of the resort and kind of chance your arm and risk maybe food poisoning from the chicken on the rotisserie. And yeah. like, just like, don't play it too safe. Like just take a couple of like, step outside your comfort zone a little bit because the predictable stuff yeah, yeah, run of the mill. We were in Morocco once, and I ordered pigeon oh, at a boy. restaurant. And Alexi was like, "Why are you doing that?" I'm like, "When am I going to have pigeon?" And I threw up so many times on the plane ride home. And wow. we had, let's just say, it's still awkward when even a New York City pigeon flies by. Yeah, I just coming from New York and having seen so many pigeons and being shat on by a pigeon. I don't know how you could bring yourself to eat a pigeon. I, I, that is yeah. very brave. 
I think I had a few a few cocktails maybe in the lead up yeah. to dinner. Maybe it was the cocktails that made you sick. Yeah. Was it greasy and horrible? You know what? It was delicious. Like the one <laughs> takeaway is it wasn't until the next morning that I realized I made a big I mean, I thought until my entire stomach got turned upside down, I thought I was going to be the pigeon guy. I felt bad for the pigeons in New York because I was going to start setting traps. <laughs> well, let me ask you, I'm, I'm coming to New York. I'm coming to New York this weekend. And on the off chance, I get the overwhelming desire to eat a pigeon. Yeah. How would I prepare such a pigeon? Tons of salt. <laughs> it doesn't matter how you cook it, but you're going to want to use as much salt as you've ever used. <laughs> all right. We have, uh, we have questions we ask all our guests. But before, because you are unique, is there a family trip destination? Uh, again, you've been to 140 plus countries. Somewhere that people haven't thought of that you think is important or, or worth a trip. I want to suggest something that I think is important that I think is something that is available to everybody or pretty much everybody. Because we are lucky that we are in a position that we can get on a plane and we can travel to Chile or Peru or we can go yes. to amazing destinations. But there's a lot of people that are not in a situation where they can travel far distances. So I would suggest, like, I really believe this. The best trips that I have ever had, regardless of where I've been, have been road trips. I really believe that getting in a vehicle, putting the phones down and getting in a vehicle and being with people, being forced to spend time with people is the most extraordinary way of connecting with people you really care about. You can have moments of silence for 45 minutes, an hour, and nobody say nothing, and you're just there with that person, and it can be so enjoyable. Then you can have really great conversations about where you are, what you're seeing. One of the things I love is if you're traveling, and I've I've gone across country a few times, road trips are so awesome in America, is finding uh, books that are written about the places you're driving through. You get to hear an author's description of the landscape in, say, Joshua Tree, or when you head out through the plains in Montana. So that would be my number one suggestion is like at some point, and because it's affordable, more affordable than sometimes getting on a plane and going overseas is think about a road trip and then look at really interesting places to visit. Do your research and find out where the best burgers are, where there's like really interesting, like the biggest bowl of barbed wire. I did a show (laughs) called uh, for FX when FX launched back in 94. And my job was to go Anywhere in America, in any state, and I went to all 50 states over a period of three and a bit years, Tom Bergeron was hosting the show and he was in a studio in New York. And then I was one of the people that traveled around the country doing crazy things. Like I changed the light bulb on the Verrazano Bridge. I hand fed sharks. I milked spiders. I did a whole bunch of stuff. But I would dig into all the different states of America and find the most eclectic things to do. Like I went with a ghost busting couple in Chicago where they go around like getting rid of ghosts out of houses. There's tours that you can do. Like just do things that are different. Don't do the standard run of the mill like stuff. Go try something different. Like eat a pigeon somewhere. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Thank you. Thank you for supporting my bad choices. Yeah. Or risky choices. I read a thing recently. New York City's trying to get control of their rat population now. Yes. Like there's like a rat czar. And some guy was making TikTok videos and being like, hey, New York, like as a public service, like I know where the rats are. I'll show you where these rats are. And then people were like, can you run tours? And now he's running rat tours in New York City where people who are like, don't want to go see a Broadway show, but are like, I'll go look at all these rats. I'll go see where the rats hang out. And like, yeah, you can find those things. I could see Seth eating a rat. You know what I mean? Like just (laughs) 
in the right circumstance. I mean, if he... I think double cocktails for pigeon, but I think I can get to rat. <laughs> I mean, but but what a great idea, right? Like to, to take something... When we were in Sicily just now, there were all these local cats and they keep the cats to get rid of the rats. And so all the locals feed these wild cats that live on the streets. They're these beautiful looking cats and they help to keep the rats down. And, you know, rats get into homes, cats don't get into houses as much. And so they'd rather have the cats on the street than the rats in the house. Sure. I don't think that would work in New York, but I I do. (laughs) I just, I love that this guy's doing rat tours, you know? Yeah. I think it was a good idea to get a rat czar. I thought it was a bad idea to publicly announce you'd hired one. I feel like that's a, that's like, it's like hiring a hitman. Like, I know there are times where you do it, but you don't go out there and say, like, introduce him to the media. <laughs> I also think it's a she. I want to clarify, which of yeah. course, they uh, it's a terrible job. They were like, we need to find a, a, a woman who's smart enough to figure out these this rat problem that we've allowed to run out of control. Yeah. I love when people just do things that are different. And I've always gravitated towards people that just think differently. And I don't know if you read, but I, I putted a golf ball across Scotland once. I did read that. I thought it was a typo <laughs> when I read it. <laughs> I was doing stories for CBS News and I did a story. I, again, I just love eccentric people that are different. And I found a guy who was a, he was an accountant and he hated his job. And he came home one day and he sat down in his chair and he, and he says to his wife how much he hates his life. And she says, well, what, what do you want to do? And he says, I want to get paid to drink uh, whiskey. And she said, well, you could do that. You could become a whiskey taster. And anyway, he ended up becoming a whiskey taster for Glenn Livett. I met him, Jeremy Bell and maninaskirt.com, I think is his website. And I just loved this guy. I just loved his zest for life. He told stories. He drank whiskey, talked about whiskey, knew everything about whiskey. And anyway, he said, um, uh, you know, I've got a bottle of, of whiskey. You know, can I come home and hang with you tonight? I said, sure. So anyway, lo and behold, we might have had whiskey. And I, I don't, I mean, I'm not good with the hard liquor stuff. I mean, I drink, I love wines. I love Pinot Noirs, a couple of beers. That's it. But anyway. You're talking to a guy who ate a pigeon. I'm not <laughs> Yes, thank you. I appreciate that. And possibly a rat soon. Yeah, yeah. Um, soon. I, uh, so anyway, we have a couple of drinks and we dream up this idea. I used to wear a kilt at school that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a bull out of a plane. I'm going to leap out. I, I know how to skydive. I'm going to leap out and I'm going to skydive with my kilt on and I'm going to follow the bull down to the coast. It's going to land on the beach and then I'm going to putt the bull from Greenock to St. Andrews from west to east across Scotland, 107 miles with a seven iron. Anyway, that was the idea under the influence of some Glenn Livett. <laughs> was it? Yeah, I was going to say, are you sure it wasn't like grain alcohol or <laughs> gasoline? <laughs> <laughs> and um, anyway, cut to four years later. That's how long it takes to get across Scotland? <laughs> well, that's, that's <laughs> gotten the rough a couple times. <laughs> with my pigeons following me. And I, 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 um, I was in London doing a story about the, the world beard and mustache competition, and I'm so close to Scotland, so I call up my friend and I go, I think I'm going to do it. So the mayor comes out, he gives us this big send-off, and I take a seven iron and I do 30-something miles a day for four days and at St. Andrews on the 18th and birdied the last hole with a seven iron. But along the way, the best part of it was every night I would go to a local pub wherever we landed, and I would put my... I lost a lot of golf balls, but I would put whatever golf ball I was currently playing with on the table and then buy everybody a drink, the locals, and just talk and meet people. And it was one of the best experiences I ever had because it's just, it's not something you can buy in a tour guide book. It's just, it came out of uh, 
well, it was an expensive bottle of whiskey, but it, it came from uh, being motivated by doing something different rather than just same old. I like how you said you like eccentrics while failing to uh, recognize this whole time <laughs> you've been the eccentric. <laughs> you've almost in every situation been the weirder of the person you've met. This is true. <laughs> this, 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 is, uh, this is very true. Uh, Josh, you want to ask Phil uh, the rest of our questions? Sure. I got a good feeling I know how the first one lands. You can only pick one of these. Is your ideal vacation relaxing, adventurous, or educational? Two and three. I, okay, I like, yeah. yeah, adventurous and education. I love learning stuff on top of being adventurous. Of course. What is your favorite means of transportation? Train, plane, automobile, Ooh. on foot, bike. You boat. probably got some weird ones in there too. Yeah, I, I'm gonna say. Um, I'm gonna guess. I know it. The, a resort paddleboard. <laughs> <laughs> I've been listening. I know exactly yeah. what you like. <laughs> yeah, that sounds just like me. It's not, I just can't wait. I'm going to say plane, if only because I feel like a plane is like a time capsule. It's still magic to me that we do what we do. We get on this, yeah. in this steel tube and we arrive in another world. And it's still, after all these years of traveling, it still blows my mind that we have the ability to fly over the world's biggest oceans and land in some faraway place. It still blows my mind. I don't, I never take it for granted. Yeah, great. If you could take a family vacation with any family other than your own family, oh my. Uh, they could be a real family, a fictional family, they could be a historical family. What family would you like to take a family vacation with? Wow, that's a really tough question. Wow. I think maybe the Hillary's. So Edmund Hillary has a son called Peter Hillary. And after Sir Edmund Hillary climbed Mount Everest in 1953, he and his families went on these incredible adventures. Hillary went to the South Pole on an adventure in, in tractors. He, he navigated some of the Ganges and the family as a whole, the Hillary family traveled in, on these incredible adventures. I, I think I'd love to join them. That would have been pretty awesome. Excellent. Ex Great answer. Excellent pick. If you had to be stranded on a desert island with one member of your family, who would it be? It's tough, but and, and you're not allowed to choose your wife, I presume, right? No, you no, can. You can. You can. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah no, yeah. I, I would definitely, yeah, I would definitely hang with my wife. Yeah, you guys seem like you got a good thing going. Yeah, we're good friends. And um, yeah, that would still work. Great. And where where do you consider, when you say where you're from, you're from a lot of places, but where are mm. you from? Are you from New Zealand? Yeah, it's funny you should get that because I, I missed out on a job once because I said I felt like my home was where my family was, and that's from New Zealand. And I was up for a job, and the exec network executive didn't like the fact that I said New Zealand and my family being from New Zealand. He wanted me to say America. <laughs> so I'm a little sensitive to answering that question, but uh, I hope I don't lose my job for saying it. But no, it's where my family is. That's home. Okay. It, it doesn't matter where they are, but in this particular case, they happen to be New Zealand. I have, uh, you know, my godfather lives in Antigua. He's a, he's amazing. He rode across the Atlantic when he was 67. I'm going to say right. New Zealand, but um, I don't really think I belong to one place. I Yeah, no, you definitely don't. But taking New Zealand then, uh, and I'm pretty sure this is a yes, would you recommend New Zealand as a family vacation destination? If people can afford to go to New Zealand... I think the value for money is very good, particularly for Americans. The exchange rate right now is 0.58. The dollar for dollar, everything costs more or less the same. I think New Zealanders are 
they're a unique type of people. We're kind of a relatively a new country compared to other countries. Maori first arrived, first indigenous people arrived 800 years ago, and then Europeans only 200 and something years ago. So it still has that pioneering spirit, adventure, and yeah, I don't think you could go wrong. Yeah, and I guess if you go, just don't expect them to be very excited or impressed with uh, with things that you've yeah. done that you think are. Or exceptional. Do not do not show off <laughs> if you go to New Zealand. Be understated and you'll fit yeah. right in. Yeah. Yeah, we right. love that. Old, that. that old thing yeah. with the poppies. Um, yeah, and then yeah, Seth yeah. Uh, sort of has his first answer, but yeah. I do. I know you've been to the Grand Canyon, and yes. I know you're going to say that it's worth it. I love the Grand Canyon. How many times have you been? Oh, maybe half a dozen. Half a dozen times. Uh-huh. Yeah, going back to the early, first time was 1972 or three, somewhere around there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if I saw a rattlesnake my first time, I, I would never have gone back. So I, <laughs> I tip my cap. I think that's what I was saying about America. I feel bad sometimes, you know, it's just not an option for some people to travel, but there is a lot of amazing stuff to see in America. And I would just encourage people to, if they can afford it again, America is the best place for a road trip, I think, in the world. It's awesome. Yeah, and campgrounds aren't that expensive in the national no. parks. And there's creative ways of, traveling too, like you can, my brother did it. He relocated an RV, you know, and a lot of rental cars, you can check it out. That'll allow you to move a car. Like sometimes they end up with too many RVs on the East coast. They need them brought over the West coast. And so you can get a vehicle and then just pay for the gas. Or I know people that have bought a really cheap car, driven across the country and then sold the car pretty much for the same price. So you sort of come out neutral. You're just paying for gas. And there's lots of creative ways of traveling. I'm always encouraging people to look at working and traveling. If you get a scuba diving certification, you can work anywhere in the world, traveling around the world. You can go pick fruit in places. So you have to be creative with how you create opportunity for travel. Like being on a cruise boat, for instance, where you're not paying for food and not paying for accommodation, you're making money, but you're getting to get off the ship at certain places. So even if you don't have money, there are creative ways of experiencing the world and traveling. Well, I think you maybe are the best fit of a guest we've ever had on this podcast. So uh, it's just been delightful talking to you, Phil. Well, I got to say, I stumbled across your podcast. I love the bond that you guys have, the two of you. It's I have a great bond with my brother. I could just tell that you guys really love each other, respect each other. And I just started listening. I was like, really? These two? I, like, are they, they're, travel- they're talking about traveling and all that sort of stuff. And then um, when we were talking about promoting Amazing Race and this incredible season that we have, and they were asking me about different places to promote the show. And I said, well, you know what? I said, you should have a listen to these Myers brothers. They were actually really interesting. (laughs) It'd be a good place to talk about Amazing Race. (laughs) Well, uh, it was a perfect fit. Uh, New episodes of Amazing Race air every Wednesday until December 13th. Congrats on another season. It's incredible what you guys do and pull off year after year, season after season. And uh, hopefully we'll see you in person soon. That would be really cool. And um, both of you guys keep up the great work. I hope we run into each other somewhere. Yeah, we'll let you know if we go to New Zealand. We'll take uh, we'll take every recommendation you've got. Oh, yeah, we'll take you up on that. That's a genuine, sincere offer. We'll hold you to it. I'm going to shoot a travel show there in December. I've done a few travel shows from the Smithsonian uh, on New Zealand. If you guys need to whet your appetite, you can check those out. But I, I thoroughly recommend it. And do let me know if you ever want to go. Will do. Thank you so much. Thank you, buddy. This was the best. Thank you, guys. It's really nice to meet you guys. Keep up the great work. Feel the cold,
once from New Zealand Wasn't it a West Indian To the dismay of his friends Phil Cogan Drove in a camper van Traveling with his fam To national parks All the national parks One time a bear Shook the camper He would be safe there Then there came A biker gang Not so tough when they're Bikies Phil Cogan Went to the Grand Canyon And met a couple just got in touch after 50 years Phil Colgan likes to travel the world with his wife and his little girl. Not so keen on all-inclusive resorts, but very much likes his New Zealand sports. Phil Colgan, he likes to play cricket. As a batsman, he hits it for six. He is also a rugby fan. I can do the haka, but I bet that he can. He had a show, 345 Live. It aired live at 345. He interviewed Sylvester Stallone. Red-headed kingpin was totally stoned. Phil Cogan says to put your phones down. Have conversations while you're driving around. Phil Cogan said to Peter Jackson. He made executives nervous because he does a lot of no. Yeah. Thanks to Airbnb for sponsoring this episode.